Once again, good morning. Our text this morning is Genesis chapter 2, 15 through uh, 18. Genesis 2, 15 to 18. Being a man, being a man according to God. Being a man according to God. This lesson has um, impact in several different ways. Uh, if you're a man, of course, we want to be godly men before our God. If you're a dad, husband, we want to have the good example set before our family. If you're a dad and you have a daughter or daughters, then you especially want to be on the lookout for a man of God. And if you're a daughter and you're thinking one day you might just be married, then you need to know about a godly man. If you're a young man, you need to qualify yourself to be a godly man. Being a man according to God. According to God. We've been duped. We've been sold a bill of goods. We... We've been bamboozled because the society, people around us, they have their measurements as to what a man is, and God has his. And the devil has, has deceived us. He's bamboozled us. You know, from the world standpoint, a man, it comes down to three B's, the three B's. The ball field, the billfold, and the bedroom. From society's standpoint, if he's performing there, then he's my man. What a stark contrast between how the world thinks and what the Bible presents. Being a man, according to God. I'd like for us to get the idea of commitment, being committed in our minds. The word means to be obligated. It means to be devoted, as you know. I, I really like the word bound. Bound. I, I am bound to what God would have me to be. I'm, I'm, I'm bound to it. I'm tied to it. Okay. So here in Genesis uh, 3, verse uh, 15, Genesis 2, 15, I should say. Genesis 2, 15. Notice, first of all, that... A man is committed to God-honoring work, labor. A man is committed to God-honoring work or labor. Notice Genesis 2.15, God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. Okay. For a godly man, there are two types of works that he's interested in. Work that will provide needs, that will provide for the needs of his family, and work that will help somebody else go to heaven. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 4, 28 and 29. Let him who stole steal no more, but rather let him labor with his hands that which is good, so that he, ha he may have wherewith to give to him who is in need. 
And so we work to provide for ourselves. We work to provide for others, especially their needs of the soul. Let's notice a couple of positive encouragements for work and then some warnings that are attached to work because a man, being a man, means we are committed to God-honoring work. First, think about this, that even before sin, even in that pristine pre-sin environment of the Garden of Eden, where Adam has it made in the shade, he is still to work, to work. Now later when sin enters the world, work becomes more toilsome and man's attitude toward work will change. But even so, God created us to work, to work. Also remember this on the positive side, Jesus worked. He worked. Notice in Mark 6 and verse 3 that he's referred to as the carpenter. Not just that his dad was a carpenter, but Jesus himself, he was known as the carpenter. But we also know that Jesus went about doing good according to Acts 10, 38. We know Jesus said this in John 9, verse 4. We must work the works of him that sent me while it's day. The night comes when no man can work. And so Jesus was involved in both types of works. He's involved in providing for his needs, but also in helping other people go to heaven. We're encouraged also by the ants mentioned in Proverbs 6. Six through eight, the ants. The inspired writer says, Go to the ant, you sluggard, you lazy person. Go to the ant and observe her ways. She, having not a chief or a ruler or any sort of leader, she works in the summer so she can have food for her harvest. The ant. Don't you, don't you see that one of the great keys of being a worker for God is you don't have to, you're not one who, who, who stands around and waits for somebody else to tell you what to do. Notice the ants there in Proverbs 6, 6 through 8. They don't, they're not standing around. They don't need a chief. They don't need a ruler. They don't need somebody telling them. They, know, they understand what to do, and they go about to do it. That's the key to being a worker for God. And too often, both in spiritual work and physical work, we're waiting around and we're trying to get by when all the, all the while God wants us to understand his will and go about and do his will. And we don't need somebody else to tell us. That's what a man is. And then notice the positive encouragement about work in Ecclesiastes 9 in verse 10 where Solomon says, Whatsoever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Do it with all your might. Whatever the task is, if it's God-honoring, then do it. If it's providing for your family, then, then do it. And do a good job with it. Be passionate about it. Whatever your hand finds to do. This is reminiscent of what Paul says in Colossians 3 and 23. He says, whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord. That's right. That's right. I hesitate to even take the idea of work and split it into two categories of, of work where you're providing for your family and, and work that helps somebody else go to heaven because 
in reality, it's all work for God. If you're doing God's work, if you're doing God's will, and part of his will is that we are working with our hands that which is good, then you are serving Christ in that manner. Whatever it is, do it with all your might. If you're doing a, a job that, that's not too popular, even in your mind, then still do it with, with goodness. If we're taking a class to, to better ourselves, then, then we want to maximize that opportunity, not just try to get by with the least that we can do. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your mind. I was very blessed myself in growing up to, to have some jobs here and there. One of the favorite jobs I had when I was younger was working at the car wash, working at the car wash. Back in the day, back in the day, where you got gas, they would actually pump the gas for you, they check your oil, and then a lot of places where I worked, we would take their car through the car wash. We did all that. Okay, we pumped the gas, checked the oil, and then we take it through this, this car wash every Tuesday night. Okay, because when you go through the car wash, all this gunk okay, comes off the car and goes down into a pit below the car wash. Okay. So every Tuesday night, those of us young, younger fellows who work there, every Tuesday night after after things were closed down, that was dig out the pit night. Okay. So no better way in those days other than a shovel and a wheelbarrow and two guys. One of us, we take turns from week to week. One of us jumped down into the pit with the shovel, shovel out all that mud and gunk into the wheelbarrow. And one of us would then take the full wheelbarrow out to the back of the property and dump it. I loved it. I loved every bit of it. When I first started work there, the guy said, you want to tell them about Tuesday night or just leave that till later? And so I said, well, what is it? And they said, well, that's that. It's this. Well, I've done that before. I'd already done that. Wheelbarrows and shovels were, were well known uh, where I grew up. Whatever we do, we do it with all of our might and have fun doing it. Okay, and then there are some warnings about work. Proverbs 26, if you notice in your Bible, Proverbs 26, 13 to 16 gives us some warnings. Verse 13, Proverbs 26, 13. Those who are lazy will make excuses. Okay. Those who are sluggers or lazy, they will make excuses. They'll say, well, there's a line in the road or there's a line in the way. There's not going to be a line in the way. You're just making an excuse because you don't want to work. And parents, as we bring up our children, both for physical work and for spiritual work, we don't need to help them make excuses for not doing what we ought to do. And then notice in Proverbs uh, 26 and verse 14, as, as the door turns on its hinges... So the sluggard turns in his bed, the lazy man. So the lazy will not only make excuses, but they overdose on sleep. We all know what it feels like not to get enough sleep. 
but a lazy person will overdose on that, and we all understand what that means. Notice verse 16. Verse 15 is self-explanatory. Okay, a lazy man puts his hand in the dish, and then he complains that he's going to have to bring that hand back to his mouth in order to eat. Okay, that's lazy. But look at verse 16. A lazy man is full of himself. Okay. He is conceited. He's full of himself. Because it says, a, a lazy man is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who give a sensible answer. Okay. Now, we've all been there. And, and it's still amazing and shocking, isn't it? That the uninvolved, the, the ones that don't do, the uninvolved, they have all the answers. Isn't that right? Those who are not willing to do, it's amazing that they have all the answers. That's what this verse is saying. Okay. He's wiser in his own eyes than seven men who actually have a sensible uh, answer. Okay. It, it's always been shocking to me that those who are not willing to, to be involved, those are the very ones that have all the answers and they can tell you exactly what you're doing right and especially what you're doing wrong. It seems like some people have put themselves in the category, I'm an analyzer. That's my job in life, to analyze. No matter where it's at, I'm going to analyze what others are doing right or wrong. The, the huge implication here is, notice in verse 16, the huge implication here is that, that studying in order to get the right answers, the sensible answers, takes work. Okay. And the lazy man is not willing to do the research. He's not willing to do his reading. He's not willing to study his, his Bible okay. like seven sensible men would do. He's not willing to do the work of digging out the answers. So he's just going to talk about it. Why is he going to talk about it? Because he's trying to take the place in his heart he knows he's not doing in, in his heart, he knows that he, hasn't, he, he doesn't have the practical way of doing much of anything, but he can sure talk about it. That's what you do. When you're not doing, you talk about it because you're trying to cover up the fact that you're not doing. And so there are some warnings about work, and here are a few of them. Now, concerning a warning, notice Paul's warning in 1 Timothy 5 and verse 8 where he says, If any will not provide for his own, he is worse than an unbeliever. He's worse than an infidel. How do you get to that point? Well, if you're lazy, God says you're, you're worse than an unbeliever. And in my mind, automatically went to Revelation 21, verse 8, where it says that the fearful and unbelieving will have their part in, in the lake that burns with fire, and this is the second death. And Paul says, if you don't provide for your own, you are worse than than that. You're worse than an unbeliever. You're worse than an infidel. But here's the thing. Guys, if, if there's a young man and he's wanting to take up time with your daughter and he doesn't have this work ethic just boiling in his soul, then you need to put him on the road. In the second place, going back to Genesis 2, being a man according to God, being a man according to God. He's not only committed to God-honoring God work, but he's also committed to the law of God. Notice verses 16 and 17. 
He's committed to the law of God, L-A-W, law. Verse 17, he says, of the, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you may not partake of that. You're going to die if you do. That's the law. That's the law. But I want us to notice, please, one key to obedience that God gives us here in his relationship here with Adam. He gives us a huge key to being committed to the law of God, and it's in verse 16, Genesis 2, 16. He says, of every tree of the garden, you may surely, you may freely eat. Guys, the first key to obedience is thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Recognizing all that God has blessed us with. When we truly do that, then staying away from those things that he has told us to stay away from becomes much easier in life, you see. Why is it that we focus on the things that we can't do? Why do we want to try to get as close as we can to do those very things we know that it's evil in God's sight? Why do we want what we can't have? God says, of every tree you may freely eat. Can you imagine? If you, you can go back and read through Genesis 2 and the rivers and, and just imagine all the trees that are there. You've got the whole garden. Adam, you've got the whole garden. Thanksgiving. But somehow or another, he, he, he lost sight of the whole garden. He and Eve began to focus on the one thing they couldn't have. Now check this out in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Paul says, now, now fornication and impurity and covetousness and filthiness and foolish talking and crude jokes, these are out of place. Instead, he says... Thanksgiving. Notice Paul there. Ephesians chapter 5, 3 and 4. Instead of all of these things, these things are out of place, okay, including the filthiness and foolish talking and crude jokes, along with fornication and covetousness and all of that. That is out of place for in, in the life of a Christian. But instead, thanksgiving, you see. If we are godly enough in our thoughts, if, if we are creative enough, we, we're determined enough to live for God, we will find that God has blessed us with enormous opportunities to actually enjoy life with good, clean stuff. Good, clean stuff. Not stuff that spots us. You know... James 1, 26 and 27 says we are to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. There's good stuff in the world to enjoy that doesn't put spots on us. Ephesians 5, 27 says the church is to be without blemish and without spot. Many of us, though, or some, I should say, some go after things of enjoyment that's going to spot you up in your soul and bring spots to the church. Why don't we do that? Why do we do that? So the first key to being committed to the law of God is to recognize how very good God is and how many blessings there are to really enjoy. If we focus on that, we won't be as tempted to go after the, the evil things. The second key here to being committed to the law of God is simply to be responsible. Adam was to be 
responsible. He was responsible for knowing the law. He was responsible for communicating that, teaching that to his wife, to his family. And then thirdly, he was to lead in the carrying out of that particular law. Okay. Guys, this is what we're looking for in ourselves and in others. Okay. Is this young man responsible in these three ways? Does he know the law of God? Is he able to communicate it to his family and friends? And does he lead in the carrying out of that law? Now, Adam failed. If you look at Genesis 3, this time, chapter 3, verse 17, notice the first thing that God says to him, because you listened to the voice of your wife, and then you did eat. Adam got it completely opposite of what God had expected. God expected him to listen, to understand it, communicate it, and then lead in the resistance of the devil, but instead he listened to the voice of his wife. And how sad that was. Young man wants time with your daughter. And he doesn't have the responsibility to know the book and communicate the book and lead in carrying out that book, then he doesn't deserve time with your daughter. He doesn't get time with your daughter. How about that? He doesn't get time with your daughter. He doesn't get enough time for your daughter to become emotionally attached to him. He doesn't deserve her emotional attachment. He doesn't deserve that. You're going to come... And you're going to ask for time with my daughter, and you don't even know the law of God? Really? You really think that I'm going to, to give you time in my family, and you don't even know the law of God? What are you thinking? Where did you come from? You want me to make it plainer? Young man is not thankful to God, is not absorbed with the work ethic, and doesn't know the law of God, cannot communicate the law of God, is not responsible in leading others to implement the law of God, then he is not qualified for time in your family. I'm not talking about a young man who somehow or another, by the skin of his teeth, he's somehow or another, he's in the kingdom, or he's, he, maybe he's in the kingdom, kingdom, maybe he's not in the kingdom, but he's associated with the kingdom. I'm not talking about someone like that. I'm talking about what, what is explained to us here uh, in Scripture. You say, well, what are you looking for? You're, you're looking for a scholar. You're looking for, you expect a, you expect a 22-year-old man to be able to speak and talk like a, 55, 60-year-old uh, Christian, well, no, but he ought to be well on his way in that direction. And the reason I say that is what John says in 1 John 2, 14 and 15. He says, I write unto you young, uh, unto you young men 
because you are strong, okay, because the Word of God abides in you, and because you have overcome the evil one. Is that much, too much to ask? It's just a 1 John 2, 14 and 15 test. That's all it is. So first of all, being a man, he is committed to God-honoring work. He is committed to the law of God. And thirdly, he is committed to his family, Genesis 2, 18 to 24 or whatever. Now, this would take another hour or so, and as much as I know you'd want to sit there and listen, let me just sum it up for you. A man who is committed to his family, his wife is his priority. You shall leave your father and mother shall cleave unto your wife. I was just looking up the verse. I'd forgotten where it was, but it's Proverbs 5, verse 18. Rejoice in the wife of your, of your youth. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Your wife is your priority. And then secondly, you're going to protect your children. You prioritize your wife and you protect your children. Hmm. I was trying to think about the most expensive car that I would ever be around. And probably it's, it's my dad's old 55 Chevrolet that, that he restored. That was probably the most expensive car that I've ever driven. Okay. And so I was just trying to think. Say a young man who just happens to have met one of my daughters comes by and he wants to he wants to drive that car. Can I take this car for a drive? Now what are you going to tell him? You ain't never going to take this car for a drive. Most likely you'll never get in the seat of this car. But you're certainly not going to hand over the keys to him after you've met him for five or ten minutes. Is that relating to you at all? Have we gotten to the point where we put more value on a vehicle than we do our own children? The souls of our own children. A man committed to his family is going to prioritize his wife. He's going to protect his children. He's going to prepare them for battle. Psalm 127 says, As arrows in the hand of a mighty man, so are the children of youth. And we are to prepare our children to go out for battle, for battle, because their battle is real. Okay. We're not just trying to keep our children out of trouble. We need to think multi-generational. As, as long as the, the Lord is allowing the earth to stand, then He expects us to develop families, one generation after another generation, after another generation who are absolutely prepared for the battle, for the fight that is against the, de the devil and Satan. So that's all the time we have uh, this morning. But being a man according to God. 
Think about our Lord Jesus as we will be doing here in worship. This is all about Jesus because it's the Lord Jesus that has brought these principles to us. But the Lord Jesus also, he was the man of man. He, he is the greatest man who ever lived. He certainly had that work ethic that we talked about. He was certainly committed to the will of God. He, he was committed to the law of God. He knew that, that it was not his will to be done, but, but the Father's will to be done. Let me ask you this. Does Jesus have a family? Is Jesus married? Well, Jesus never got married in the physical sense, but he's very much married to the church. The church is his bride. Just as God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and from that rib he made his wife and brought his wife to him. So Jesus, aren't we thankful? A deep sleep came upon Jesus at crucifixion time. Jesus died. But God brought him back to life in order that he may have this bride, which is the church, which is comprised of those who are giving their life to Christ and following him. What about you today? Have you made that great decision to turn away from sin, to confess your faith in Jesus as the Son of God, to be immersed in water for the remission of sins? Will you come home to the Lord today, right now, as we stand together, as we sing?